Uh, all right, I'm not the only one wearing like a Christmas shirt or sweater or something like that here. My wife was like singing a Christmas song when she saw me. Like, get ready, I've got a couple of these. All right, so all right. Hey, uh, you probably have some familiarity if I say the term X Factor. And for a lot of you, you're thinking about a show that you've seen where you've got these. Uh, it's kind of a television competition, uh, British reality show where they're kind of looking for all this new singing talent. But the X Factor it refers to a special talent or a quality that someone has. It's, uh, it's really the variable that really makes all the difference in a given situation to impact an outcome and to make it favorable, make it different, distinguished. Now, chances are you're not going to be appearing on the X Factor show. I mean, some of you actually, I could hear you, you're, you're singing good. And if you want to be discovered, roll down your window when you're driving and singing, okay? But most of you are not going to be on the X Factor show, but I do want, to know, want you to know something. There is an X Factor that is available to you. Really, you're going to find the orientation of your heart can be the X Factor in your life. What will it be? Are you going to have an, a God-occupied heart or a God-avoiding life? You're going to find that the fullness of joy or the fertility of life is all determined by the focus of your heart. And so I'd just like to ask you this morning, what is the orientation of your life? Do you have what we could call the X factor? Well, let's take a look as we're making our way through Ecclesiastes. When you get to chapter 5 at the very end, verse 18 through chapter 6, you're coming now where he's just driving this argument to a head. And he's presenting really two alternatives to you. The joy of a God-occupied life or the futility of a God-avoiding heart. So let's take a look at it. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 18. Look at the joy of a God-occupied heart. You're going to see that God gives the gifts of pleasure and work. And we saw this last week, but let's take a look again. Verse 18, he says, Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting. Always read in context. Remember how verse 17 ended? He said, Listen, life can be dark and great vexation, sickness, and anger. Maybe that describes your life right now. You doesn't have to be that way. You can have a God-occupied heart. And what you see here, I, he says, I have seen what is good and fitting. It's beautiful. It's awesome to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. And what he's saying there is that God gives gifts to people. Simple pleasures, simple gifts, like food, things to drink, your work, and he does so that you will find joy, specifically joy in him. It's kind of like uh, this Christmas, maybe you are... Buying a present for like a kid or a grandkid. We got a guy in our church who's making presents for his grandkids out of wood. How cool is that? Or maybe you're going to write a letter. You're going to do something special, but why do you do that? Why do you give that gift? You give the gift so that the recipient receives joy. But it's more than that they just enjoy the gift. Ultimately, you would like them to know that it is an expression of your love to them. That's why you've given these gifts. And that's why God has just literally showered the world and our lives with gifts. 
But we're kind of like that selfish child that just never, give me, give me, give me, and kind of an entitlement sort of thing. Never say thank you or hardly ever. And yet, God wants you to understand, if you had food, you've provided you something to drink, you've got work, all of these are gifts given to you by God for your joy. Not only that you would enjoy them, but more specifically, that you would realize they are gifts from God that leads to joy in Him. Gratitude and thanksgiving. Now, you're like, well... Man, I'm very thankful for my food, and I eat a lot of it. And I, I like, man, I'm liking that God gives me lots of things to drink, right? But that work bit, yeah, you don't know where I work, man. I am the only Christian there. It is, it is rough. I refer to it as the salt mine. It is challenging, and it's difficult. I want you to see what this text is saying is that this is actually a gift that God has given you. He's asking you to change your orientation after all. When you see a God in the middle of these activities and him the provider, it changes your entire perspective. It's because your focus is different and you're going to have a different outcome. You see, there is joy in the God-occupied heart. And ultimately, your work, for instance, can become worship when you have God at the center of it. You're doing it in his glory, in his strength. When you don't know or understand how things should work out or you need wisdom, you actually go to him. Friends, all of this is a beautiful life. It's like the text says. It's good and it is fitting. And it's not when he says that this is your reward. You see that at the end of verse 18? It's not that it's the only reward. It's like, well, you just kind of live and you get some rewards. This is it. Food, drink, work. He's just saying these are just some of the blessings that God has given. God gives the gifts of pleasure and work. But notice what else he does. In order to have joy in a God-occupied heart, he not only gives gifts, but this is so critically important. God gives the ability to enjoy him and the gifts that he gives. You see that in verses 19 and 20? Look at this. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, who gives wealth to people? Who gives resources? What does the text say? God does. He's the one who's provided these things. There's nothing wrong with having wealth, riches. There's nothing wrong with having money so you can pay your bills and put food on the table. And some of you may have significant wealth. You need to understand where that came from. It should lead to rejoicing and an understanding of responsibility. But look at this. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God, the ability to actually enjoy what you have. It's a gift from him. And he says, for he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. God, a God occupied heart. It brings joy to life. And that's what he's driving at. God gives the ability to actually enjoy the gifts that he's given. So he gives gifts, but just because you have gifts, you can have money, you can have toys, you can have food, you can have work, doesn't mean that you're enjoying them. In fact, we probably have a lot of examples where that's not taking place. But God not only gives the gifts... But in order to really appreciate them and enjoy them, you have to have the gift of enjoyment, and only God can give that. And he does. He wants you to experience joy. And so 
I mean, think of how, what God does. He gives like the gift of food. And we're very thankful for our food. But could you imagine like food really wouldn't be all that great if you didn't have a mouth or you didn't have teeth to chew it, right? And if you don't have teeth, you have dentures, right? I mean, if you didn't have those things, that would be miserable. He gives you taste buds. He gives you a digestive tract, right? All of this is for the fullness of joy. I want you to see life very differently. God gives us minds that can appreciate beauty. And he gives us art so we can do so. He places us um, in this world, in this universe. It is fascinating. He wants our hearts to thrill. He gives us feet so we can walk in it, eyes that we can see it. We can even sense it and we can smell and we can see and there's beautiful sights and we can travel. All of this is not just so that we have gifts, but so that we have joy because these are gifts from the great giver, from God himself. And he says in verse 20, he says he'll not often consider the years of his life. It's that it's not that he doesn't think about the troubles or the difficulties because all of us have problems, right? All of us have difficulties and challenges and trials. It's just this. God allows us to not be overwhelmed by the darker realities of human existence. He will not allow them to overshadow the divinely bestowed blessings that he gives, especially himself. But friends, it comes back to your orientation. God occupied, not just I think it in my head, but you literally are keep focusing upon him and you're experiencing that kind of joy. And in your life and in your work, why don't you ask God, would you give me enjoyment in these? And even just the simple things. Ecclesiastes 2.25 says this, for who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? It doesn't work. If you're here and you just got stuff and you just want more stuff, I want you to understand that apart from God being at the center, thankfulness, gratitude, joy, and the gift of enjoyment that God gives, you will never enjoy it. Never. There's a story told of a, of a rich industrialist, and he comes across this fisherman. And the fisherman's just kind of kicking back in his boat, and there's plenty of daylight left, and, um, but he's not out fishing. And the, this, this rich guy, he goes, hey, what are you doing? Why aren't you out there fishing? He goes, well, I already caught all the fish I need for today. I'm like, you are not getting this. No, 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 no. You need to get out there, and you need to catch more fish. You can see if you catch more fish, you're going to make some more money. If you make more money, you know what? You can actually get a better boat. So you're not just about 50 feet away from the dock. You can go out there where the big fish are. You start catching fish like that. You know what? Then you can get some better nets. In fact, you can get some nylon nets. Then you're going to really start raking them in. When you start bringing in a whole bunch of fish, you can actually start getting more boats. You get more boats, you get some people to do that fishing for you. Guess what? Man, you're going to be set. You can be wealthy like me, and then you can start to really enjoy life. So what are you doing just sitting there on your boat? And the fisherman just kind of looks at this guy as he's kind of imploding on him. And he says, what do you think that I'm doing? <laughs> I'm enjoying life. Friends, there are so many of us that think that if we have more then we will have joy. God directly confronts the myth of this age. And he tells us this. It's not more that's going to bring you joy in life. 
It's God. It's him. Now, how do you receive the gift of enjoyment in life's pleasures and work? I just want to give it to you really simply. How, how can you receive this gift? Well, first of all, be thankful. Be thankful. A God-occupied heart is a thankful heart. You see, when you keep focusing your attention upon God and you receive these gifts, even the simple ones like what you're going to eat this afternoon, and it leads to gratitude, there's going to be a sense of joy and appreciation that you, you have that simply can't come when you're not being thankful. In fact, it's like one guy said, if you're not happy with what you have now, you'll not be happy with what you get later. And that's how it works. So be thankful for what you have now. Let me give you another. Not only to be thankful, but be thoughtful. Ask, like, God, how can you give me joy in just even these simple pleasures? Things that you're taking for granted. Things maybe you've never thanked God for or even considered how joy might be a part of this. Use all of the faculties that he's given you. Engage your mind. Get, get out of autopilot where you're just kind of coasting and think. What is it that God has given me and that I can find joy in? And why did he do that? What am I to learn? How, how can this lead to even greater gratitude and appreciation in my life? And then finally, not only want to be thankful, be thoughtful, but be gracious. Let the joy that God gives you start extending to others where you can become the face of grace. That really joy that you're experiencing now starts overflowing to others. And friends, when you're thankful and you're thoughtful and you're gracious, what happens is you, you're receiving the gifts of enjoyment through pleasures and work that God has given you. And if this is your orientation, if you have a God-occupied life, friends, that becomes the X factor in your life. It'll make all the difference. For some of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe it's been the discovery of this past month or this year. For some of you, you've actually spent years Focused and occupied with God and you see him as your great delight and you actually are very thankful for what you have Whether you have little or you have much And for others of you, this will be a game changer for you to have a God-occupied life But I do want you to understand That most people will never have this They will not have it. I want to show you the common path for most people under the sin it's not a God-occupied life that leads to joy. It is a God-avoiding life that leads to futility. And that's what chapter 6 is all about. Now, I want you to know chapter 6, it is painful to read and to reflect on. But I want you to see firsthand the futility of a God-avoiding life. In verses 1 through 6 in chapter 6, you find that you've got gifts without gratification. Look what he says, chapter 6, verse 1, he says, there is an evil, ra'ah. It's like, this is a, an evil that's a great disaster or morally evil. It's an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men. Under the sun, remember that, that common refrain? It's life lived on this earth from a very horizontal perspective. You never considered God in the equation. And what Solomon is saying is that this is a real evil, and it is very prevalent. It is widespread. This has been going on for generations. 
people receiving gifts without gratification. So he says, there's a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor. Wow. So that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. And yet God has not empowered him to eat from them for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. He says, here's a guy and he's got honor. He's got wealth. He's got riches. But you know what? He does not have any enjoyment. In fact, someone else gets the enjoyment. Whether he loses it through uh, because he's hoarded it and then he dies, or maybe there's been war. I mean, in times of war, people like lose all their stuff. Someone else takes it over. And they may even take that person over and send them away. Or maybe there's some injustice or some violence. But he never actually enjoys all that God has given him. You see that? Riches, wealth, and honor. And he says, this is, a, is vanity and a severe affliction. Solomon, what he's doing, he's, he's penning this reality that God gives such good gifts to his people. Riches, wealth, and honor, though, do not equate automatically to bringing happiness, joy, satisfaction, and purpose in life. In fact, these gifts can actually have the actually reverse effect on a person's life. They can bring unhappiness, ingratitude, selfishness, restlessness, and grief. You got gift, you got wealth, you got money, you got honor, but you don't have God and you don't have enjoyment. A classic example of this is a guy by the name of Howard Hughes. He was born in 1905, died in 1976. At age 45, Hughes was one of the most glamorous men in America. He dated movie stars. Uh, he, uh, I mean, he had flew these. Pi- he was a pilot for exotic, uh, exotic test aircraft that they were working on. He did top secret CIA missions. Uh, he had his own string of hotels around the world. He also had his own airline, not just an airplane, his own airline, TWA. He owned it so he could fly anywhere around the world. He had immense wealth. But that, that was at age 45. At age 65, 20 years later, Howard Hughes still had plenty of money, $2.3 billion to be exact. But the world's richest man had really become what we could consider maybe one of the most pathetic men on the face of the earth. He lived in small, dark rooms on the top of some of his hotels. He, would, um, he had no sun, always blocking out the windows. He had no joy. He was completely unkept. Like, his beard literally grew down to his waist, as did the hair on the back of his head. He let his fingernails grow. Some of them were over two inches long. He, 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 this guy was a stud in his youth. I mean, he was 6'4". He's kind of a hulking kind of guy. At age 65... He had gotten down to about a hundred pounds. He he was uh, basically like laying in these beds. He'd lay in bed naked because he was afraid of germs. And he would watch movies over and over. Sometimes he would watch the same movie over a hundred and fifty times, just over and over and over again. And he wasted away. He was hooked on drugs, and he dies at age sixty-seven. And so Hughes had it all. He had it all except God and the supernatural ability 
to actually enjoy that which God gives. He didn't have it, and his life is a reflection of it. George Bernard Shaw said it well. There are two tragedies in life. One is to not get your heart's desire. And the second is to get it. You see, sometimes we think, well, if I just get all these things, I'm going to be happy and I'll be satisfied and I'll be a success. And friends, I want you to know it's a myth. It never happens that way. You want to enjoy the gifts that God gives you now, whatever they might be. And look what else he says in verse 3 and following. He says, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say better the miscarriage than he. For it comes in futility and goes into obscurity and its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun and it never knows anything. It is better off than he. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place. And here he uses some rather startling illustrations. So he has a guy who lives 2,000 years, okay? So obviously he's using hyperbole, exaggeration. But he's doing so to drive home a point. Does, has anybody ever lived 2,000 years? Good. We must have a kid in here because they know the answer. All right. Who's, who's the oldest guy, person ever to live on the earth? Anybody happen to remember his name? Methuselah. Anybody happen to know how, how old he was? Oh, yeah. You got smart. So much better than first service. Don't tell him there. Okay. Yeah, 969 years, okay? And, uh, and then does anybody know of anybody that had 100 children? Now, I know we have some large families in the church, but I, no one's got 100 kids, right? That, okay, no one does. Although, here's something really interesting. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, 2 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 21, tells us that he had 88 kids. Can you imagine that? I was thinking about that. That's like a birthday party, like every four days. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, it's like, whose birthday is it? You're, you're just going to be like the Goodyear blimp. You're eating so much cake and stuff like that. That's just one party after another. But he's saying, so I want you to imagine, you got everything that in the Hebrew mind, traditionally, that should lead to happiness. And the Hebrew mind thought this, that if you have riches and you have a long life and you've got a lot of kids... You will be happy. And that's what he's saying here. But the reality is, you got all those things, but you don't have God and the enjoyment that he provides. He says, you know what? It'd be better if you weren't even born. I tell you what, this guy here, he's got a lot of gifts. He's got honor, riches. He's got a lot of kids. But you don't have enjoyment that comes from God. You know what that's going to do? You're going to be a very miserable person. And you know what? This guy was made people around him so miserable, they didn't even give him a proper burial. Do you see that? You see, in, in Jewish culture, to not bury someone would be a sign of disrespect and dishonor. And this guy seemed like he had it all, but really he had nothing at all. I want you to remember something. Wealth, long life, and posterity do not guarantee satisfaction in life. And that's what he's driving at here. He says this, verse 6, you know, even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, you never really experience the joy that God offers because you really never had a God-occupied life. He says, 
do not all go to one place. It's, it's just over. When he was 53 years old, John Rockefeller uh, was the world's only billionaire at 1892. I'm sure you're familiar with the Rockefeller. But you may not know a lot about his life. So this guy, uh, at 1892, at 53, he was making a million dollars a day. Not bad, huh? But it didn't look like John Rockefeller was going to make it too much longer because at this point in his life, even though he's only 53 years old, he lives on milk and crackers. He is so overwhelmingly concerned about his wealth and what might happen to it. He can't sleep. He can't eat. He literally is destroying himself because of his worry. And he's just literally consumed by this wealth that he has. But eventually... He learned how to give money away. In fact, he became a great philanthropist. That's why you actually know his name. In fact, the guy who looked like he was going to die at 53, he ends up celebrating his 98th birthday. In 1905, there was an interview conducted with John Rockefeller, and I'd just like to read you a brief excerpt. He said, quote, God gave me money, and I believe the power to make money is a gift from God to be developed and used to the best of our ability for the good of mankind. Having been endowed with the gift I possess, I believe it is my duty to make money and still more money and to use the money I make for the good of my fellow man according to the dictates of my conscience. You see, I want you to understand that having wealth is not evil. I'll tell you what evil is. It's when wealth has you. Maybe God has blessed you. Honor, riches, wealth. But you need him to enjoy it and to use it wisely. I mean, remember what Jesus had to say? Listen, listen, listen here. You can only have one master in this life. If your master is money, showing up at church isn't going to change anything. What's going to happen is ultimately adoration of one feeds the contempt of the other. What you need is the perspective that I'm going to love God and not money. And because I love God, I will use the money that he has for the purposes that he would want. Because it's a God-occupied life. But friends, if you, if you have a God-avoiding life, you've got futility. You can have gifts without gratification. Look at verse 7. You can have employment without enjoyment. Look at verse 7. All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. It's kind of like, remember the, like the carrot on the stick? And you're, you're, I really want contentment and satisfaction. You just keep going, but the carrot keeps going in front of you. And what he's kind of saying here, he's, the immediate reference here is to food. You see that in verse 7? And yet Solomon's intention seems to be anything material. You think that material things are going to satisfy. I want you to remember this. Stuff doesn't stat satisfy. Stuff doesn't satisfy. I mean, let's just think about this for just a minute. Physical things meet physical needs. Does that make sense? Physical things cannot meet spiritual needs. Your soul needs spiritual food. It needs relationship with God. You need the filling of the Spirit. You need words of truth. Your soul needs spiritual food. That's how God's designed it. We need Him. And so you need to understand that you and I were made 
for him. We're designed for him. He gives gifts. He showers these gifts, but they're meant to lead to gratitude and joy in him. I mean, think about uh, this idea of enjoyment. You can't have enjoyment in your employment. If you think that just employment itself is going to give you the joy that you need, you're going to be sorely mistaken. Remember a guy by the name of Pete Rose, great baseball player, went on to be the manager for the Cincinnati Reds. And uh, you remember all that scandal about him betting on baseball when he was a manager and he was denying it for 14 years. He denied betting on baseball. And then he said, well, I'm going to just come clean and I'm going to write a book and I'm going to put it all out there. And so he writes this book called My Prison Without Bars. It comes out in January 2004, and he tells the world it's worse than you think. He literally lost hundreds of thousands of dollars betting on baseball while he was the manager of the Cincinnati Reds. And he said, I didn't bet against the Reds or on the Reds or anything like that, but, but I, I, this gambling thing, man, it had me. And I want you to listen just to a brief excerpt from his book. He writes this. I didn't realize it at the time, but I was pushing toward disaster. A part of me was still looking for ways to recapture the high I got from winning batting titles and World Series. If I couldn't get the high from playing baseball, then I needed a substitute to keep from feeling depressed. I was driven in gambling as well as in baseball. Listen what he says. Enough was never enough. I had huge appetites and I was always hungry. And look at verse 7. All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. See, if you've got a God-avoiding life, you've got employment without enjoyment. You can have gifts without gratification. And look at verses 8 through 12. If you have a God-avoiding life, you in essence have life without divine leadership. These verses, verses 8 through 12, set up the second half of the book. God is going to present wisdom for life so that you experience the fullness of joy. But if you've got a God-avoiding life, then you are living life without divine leadership. And it's going to show up in, in, verses, in chapters 7 through the end of, end of the book, uh, verse chapter 12. He's going to refer to wisdom about 30 different times, or the wise. But look what he says about life without divine leadership. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? What the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. This too is futility and a striving after wind. So what he's saying is that wisdom is by far, far, far better. And verse 9 is kind of like... Solomon's version of this uh, little little parable where he says, or I guess it's a principle, a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush, right? So if like you got a bird in your hand, you don't like, well, there's two over there. I'll set this one down here because I'll get two. No, be happy with the bird that you got, right? That's the statement there. And that's what he's saying in verse nine. Let me, let me just kind of synthesize what he's saying. The wise man, even if he is poor, he sees how to live. He has a God-occupied heart. The fool, though, even if he's rich, he keeps chasing the ideals and the dreams of this world, and his soul is never satisfied because it cannot satisfy his soul. And that's why Solomon says in verse 9 at the end, 
that is futility and it is striving after the wind. You need divine leadership in your life. But if you got the God-avoiding life, you're living life without his leadership. And it's going to be miserable. Look what he says in even verse 10 and 11. He says, whatever exists has already been named and it is known what man is. For he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. For there are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage to a man? To name something, you see that in verse 10, means to have authority over it. And God has named all things. He is the supreme one. And this text is trying to give clarity that God is all-wise, all-powerful, all-knowing. And you and I, we're not even a blip. If you think that, well, God's just a little bit smarter than us, you are sorely mistaken. Why is it that you think that you're going to dispute God? Like, no, no, God, you got it mixed up. I know how joy and satisfaction and meaning and purpose. When he says, no, why are you disputing with God? He has named all things. He knows what man is. Why are you fighting him? I mean, C.S. Lewis basically said this. When you're arguing against God, you're arguing against the very power that makes you able to argue at all. Think of it. Does that make any sense that you're going to argue against God? That you've got it figured out? Friends, success, riches, wealth, honor. That's not going to ultimately satisfy your soul. Because you were made for God. I mean, don't you think it's pretty cool? Like when you see a horse and it's galloping. Like, that is so cool. It's graceful. Or when you see an eagle and it's soaring. It's like, wow, that's what that bird was designed to do. Your soul was designed to find satisfaction and joy in him. And if you will not have his leadership and his life in you, it is utter futility. It's vanity. It is striving after the wind. I mean, can you imagine if like, like a horse tried to fly? Now, I know, you know, like in mythology, there's like a horse, Pegasus, he's got wings. But that's a myth. That doesn't really exist if you're looking for it at the zoo. Okay, or could you imagine if some circus guy treated uh, taught an eagle to try to gallop, you know, like, oh, that's weird. Okay, here's my five dollars to see that. This is like, that's not that's weird. That's the equivalent of us trying to find our satisfaction and joy in life. By just it's got to be about the money. It's got to be about riches, wealth and honor. I need a little respect around here. You're going to be sorely disappointed. We were made to enjoy him. You know why God gives work? Because he enjoys work. And he wants us to find joy in it. Because there's joy from him. He gives us simple pleasures like food and drink. You know why? He gives you riches and wealth because he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And look what he says in verse 12. For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? Who knows? God does. He will not, he will spend them like a shadow for who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun. There are so many ways that you can mess up your life. But if you really want to live your life well and experience God's best for you, you want to look to him. Who knows? God does. It's like life is like a shadow. It's just passing. But you don't need to have a shadow of existence. Friends, you and I, God wants us to experience a life of love and, le- and leave a legacy of wisdom and to know grace and to be gracious and to experience the fullness of maturity in his son. And he will lead you in that path 
But really, the question is, are you going to follow? It goes back to your orientation. God-occupied life? Joy. God-avoiding life? Futility. Let me just ask you a couple questions. Does life today seem futile? Does it seem futile? I mean, this is kind of how it works. You're like, oh, man, if I could just marry that person, then my life would be so much better. Or if I could have that job or get have um, that neighborhood, if I could live in that house, or if I could have that lawnmower that my neighbor has, my life would be so much better, man. I would be a happy guy, finally, right? But it never works that way. We seem to think that if we had a bigger salary or whatever, that we're going to finally experience this peace and joy. And you know, God graciously tolerates us as we kind of work on this circular journey of futility. But he's saying, no, 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 no. Why are you fighting me? I'm trying to do a work in your life. Listen, trust me. Don't buy into the myths of this world. And let me ask you another question. Are you fearful about the future? Well, I know someone that knows what's going to happen in the future. So do you. It's God. He tells man what lies ahead. You want to go to him. He's got the answers. And friends, the futility of life, living life apart from God, do you know what it's meant to do? It's meant to drive us to the promised and delivered Savior. All the brokenness, pain, sin, destroyed relationships, all the evil that we spew out of our lives, do you know what it's meant to do? It's to take us to Jesus where we experience forgiveness, life, everything that you and I need. We need life, we need love, and we need leadership. Did you know that they're all provided in Jesus? Remember Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what sin is? Sin means to miss the mark and to earn the consequences. Sin means to miss the mark and earn the consequences. That's why God gives us the free gift of the Son. Everything we need is found in Christ. And you and I are pretty familiar with the futility of life. It's meant to drive you to God and say, life apart from Him is not the answer. There's a guy by the name of Mike Tyson, pugilist, fighter, boxer, when, when he was in his prime, this guy was so dangerous. There are grown men that were afraid to get in the ring with this guy. He was absolutely dangerous. He made all sorts of money, but his life literally came apart at the seams. Based on an interview with Tyson, this, happened, this was uh, John Saraceno from USA Today. He did this interview with Tyson. Tyson at the time was age 39, and this is what John writes. At the time, at age 39, he is anything but peace. Confused and humiliated after a decadent lifestyle left him with broken relationships, shattered finances, and a reputation in ruin. The fighter cannot hide his insecurities, stacked as high as his legendary knockouts. And listen to what Mike Tyson was quoted as saying. I'll never be happy. I believe I'll die alone. I would want it that way. I've been a loner all my life with my secrets and my pain. I'm really lost, but I'm trying to find myself. I'm really a sad, pathetic case. And John goes on to write, This divorced father of six is blunt, 
gregarious, funny, vulgar, outrageous, sad, angry, bitter, and at times introspective about the opportunities he squandered over the last two decades. He discusses his drug use, the weed got to me, the lack of self-esteem, and sexual addiction. And Tyson says this, quote, My whole life has been a waste. I've been a failure. Friends, it doesn't have to be that way for Mike or for you or for me. But it all goes back to the orientation of your heart. Do you have the X factor? Do you have Christ? The fullness of joy or the futility of life? It's all determined by the focus of your heart. So fix your eyes upon Jesus and follow him. Let's pray. Lord, only you can give such utter clarity into the chaos and confusion of our world. And Father, for someone who has come here today, and they understand full will futility, chapter 6 kind of like is the story of their life. Would they just pray with me now and say, Lord, I turn from myself and my sin and this futility of life apart from you. And I trust in Jesus, the payment for my sins, the one resurrected to give me life and leadership. And I trust in you. And Lord, for all of us, for those of us who know you, Lord, help us to find our joy and satisfaction in you. To see the gifts that you've given as just that, gifts from you meant to bring joy in Christ. Help us to live a life that is contagious and filled with your loveliness, reflections of your grace, and living for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.